Um, today's scripture reading um, in the New Testament from James 4, 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. From the Old Testament, Proverbs 10:12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 17:19. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. Proverbs 26:21. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for, skin, for kindling strife. Proverbs 17:14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Proverbs 16:7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Grace. Well, we are continuing our series on Proverbs for the digital age, where we are seeing how the sufficiency of Scripture is able to speak into our current cultural climate. And so the big concept of Proverbs is the idea of wisdom and how we apply wisdom in all areas of life, from our words to our friendships and relationships, and this week, speaking about conflict. And so... Before we begin, can we pray together? Father, bless the preaching of your word. Lord, you have already won the battle against Satan, sin, and death. And so let us be a people who are peacemakers in a world filled with strife. And that your spirit use the preaching of your word to enable us to love you and to love others. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You know, I, I thought about how to start this sermon to sort of display the problem at hand before us in our day and age, but, but when I reflected on it, I realized that I probably don't need to do much convincing to tell you about how our digital age makes our conflicts worse. In fact, I, I think that one, pe- one thing that all people can agree on is that when they speak about the way that the digital landscape has changed us is that it has not made our conflicts better. In fact, everyone probably universally agrees uh, on whatever side of the debate that you're on that it's made it worse, from conflict from the smallest things to arguing about phone usage, faux fights on the internet, whether the dress is blue and black or, gla- or gold and white, whether LeBron is better than Michael, to the, to the most violent and, and really consequential conflicts of our day, political insurrection, unjust wars, mass shootings, racial hatred, misogyny, religious bigotry. Uh, there is nothing that is, uh, that is up for debate today that doesn't receive the reaction of unhealthy conflict. And these conflicts become the regular challenge daily for the public to navigate 
understand and figure out how, how do we get through this. Now, to be sure, there are issues out there today that deserve good conflict. Uh, we fight against the injustices of the world. We, we labor against the evils of, of Satan and wage war against the sin that is in us and the world around us. We, we strive rightly to protect the innocent, to care for the poor, the orphan, the widow, those who cannot defend themselves. There is such a thing as a just war for the, against the forces of darkness. Uh, these are all clear from Scripture. And to the digital age's credit, there are, because of access to information, tremendous resources out there, more than we've ever had in the history of the world, to equip us in that good fight, to educate ourselves in, in telling a truthful history, to, to know the, the real facts of what is going on out there. But what about unholy, unrighteous conflict? How do we navigate and not get pulled into them? and engage with them in an unholy and unrighteous manner? What does Scripture and Proverbs tell us about this kind of conflict? How do we as Christians navigate them? We'll look at four things here today as we think about how the Christian navigates through conflict in the digital age. One, um, the causes of conflict. Two, the consequences of conflict. Three, the prevention of conflict. And four, the joys of peace. So let's start with the causes of conflict here today. Uh, let me begin by noting that in our verses today out of Proverbs, you'll notice that the English Standard Version of Scripture has chosen the word strife to define conflict. And the reason why they are doing that is because the word here for strife, which is conflict, is a unique word in the Old Testament that is used almost exclusively in the book of Proverbs. The word here for strife has this meaning of an ungodly contention, uh, devoid of any positive connotation. This is not talking about good conflict. This is talking about evil, unholy, unrighteous conflict. This word for strife in Proverbs is associated with mockers, haters, nagging spouses. This is vastly different than the New Testament word for strife. So Proverbs here, when it's using this word, it's not, not sort of the good kind of striving, you know, when we think of the word strive, you know, fighting for a good cause, or in the biblical sense, you know, striving for the things of God. Strife in Proverbs represents the worst kind of conflict, an ungodly conflict that needs to be addressed. And so what is the cause of that kind of strife? Proverbs ten twelve, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Again, hatred here is not talking about a godly hatred. We are called to hate evil and to cling to what is good. We are called to hate our sin, for example. It's that those are appropriate hatreds to have, but ungodly hatred leads to ungodly strife, as this proverb teaches us. Now, this might appear to be an obvious statement of fact, but when you think about it, it's rarely the issue when we start talking about the causes of conflict in our day and age today. Have, have you ever talked to two people on the opposite sides of an issue and what is the cause of that conflict? What do they point to? They say, oh, you know, this war is over ideological differences. This war is over a plot of land. This, this war is over economic and political sovereignty. But when you really talk behind the wall of that pretension, what is it really? What's behind that really? 
What Scripture reminds us is the nature of all ungodly conflict, and that is hatred of a person. Hatred of a person. In Christianity, Jesus said that the two greatest commandments are categorized by the verb of love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this, on these two hangs all of the law and the prophets. In other words, the fullness of the good news of Jesus Christ cannot be reached. The totality of the teaching of Scripture cannot be fully understood unless you love. You love God and you love your neighbor. That in acting out on that love, you understand the nature of God of love covering our offenses, how God covers up all of our offenses with his love. Your sin and your shame through the love of Christ who gave himself for you on the cross. Your understanding of the gospel is characterized and shaped by that love. So the reconciliation that Christ wins for us restores these vertical relationships, right, to love the Lord your God, and these horizontal relationships to love our neighbor as ourselves. So it should be no surprise then that the antithesis of the love that covers all offenses is an ungodly hatred, which leads to ungodly conflict. Ungodly hatred leads to, in the end of the day, hating God and hating those made in the image of God. That if you look at the narrative of Scripture, all the ungodly conflicts, you will see that hatred was the root of it all. Familial hatred in Joseph's brothers who hated him in Genesis and sold him to slavery. Ethnic hatred in 2 Samuel 13, the, uh, the, the Jews that were hated by Haman and Esther. Right? Relational hatred. Amnon uh, hated Tamar so much that he committed the unthinkable against her. Religious hatred, right? Jesus reminding his disciples that the world would hate them and the Father who sent them in John 15. You see, in other words, the causes of ungodly conflict aren't simply about differences of opinion. They stem from the nature of hate that is the antithesis of the true love of God and true love of neighbor. And so what are the consequences of this conflict? Our second point here today. Let's look at Proverbs 17, 19. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. There's that word again. He who makes his door high seeks destruction. You know, Proverbs 17, 19 ironically uses this word loving transgression to describe a fool that loves uh, basically strife. This hatred is basically turning a false love, a love that is embracing sin in a way that destroys their neighbor. And what are the resulting ends of these consequences? Proverbs 18, 19. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. So when we embrace hate, when we love our transgressions, when we love strife, the cause of our conflict leads to have us having distorted loves leads to the ruining of our lives and the lives of those around us. The imagery of Proverbs 18:19 is a person who uses a high doorway to exalt his mansion over his lowly neighbor. The utilization of, of wealth and power and prestige to destroy the least of these. That's sort of what the, the force of Proverbs 18:19. So this irony is very palpable, right? In loving their sin, Right? In creating these, these sort of temples to themselves, they hate those who God loves. 
the writer Jake Rawson tells a story about what high doors or fences does to destroy others in history. Uh, you see, in, 1870, uh, in the 1870s, there was a man by the name of Charles Crocker. Um, we can put this picture up there. He was a successful railroad baron and banker. He, he looked the part. You know, six feet tall, 300 pounds, a controlling shareholder in the Wells Fargo Bank. Um, and he decided in the 1870s that he needed a proper mansion. So, looking for the perfect vista, he found this stretch of land called Knob Hill in San Francisco and bought the cottages on the block one by one by one. There was one gentleman who refused to sell. His name was Nicholas Young, a German immigrant who worked hard to carve out a small cottage and a beautiful garden that he loved cultivating. So they went to the negotiation table. Crocker offered 6,000. Young said 12,000. So Crocker offered 9,000, trying to meet in the middle. But Nicholas Young refused to budge. Crocker was so offended by the negotiations as they escalated that he started yelling profanities and ran around the room. <laughs> the conflict became more than just a $3,000 difference. The conflict became about power, respect, belonging. When no negotiation could be reached, Crocker began raising every single building on the block, ordering workers to arrange their dynamite blasts so that the rock debris would pelt Nicholas Young's house. And yet still, Young would not budge. So what did Crocker do? In loving his transgression of pride and lack of humility, he built a high door, or in this case, used a $3,000 difference in the negotiation to build a large 40-foot high fence around Young's property and near his mansion. So you can see that 40-foot high fence right there, sitting right where Crocker's mansion would sit. Uh, the fence around Young's property uh, effectively killed Young's precious cultivated garden. This is what became known as a spite fence, a fence built in the spite of someone else. You see, his mansion, rather than being the pride of his career, Crocker's mansion became a laughingstock tourist attraction. And Young and Crocker hated each other all the days of their lives. Nicholas Young died. His widow refused to sell. And his once beautiful garden became a vacant property filled with trash. Crocker died eight years later, the spite fence becoming a tourist attraction dump. The house remained in that laughable condition until 28 years later, after the spite fence was built. The children of both Nicholas Young and Crocker came to an agreement. The land was finally sold to the Crocker family, and the fence came down. The house was not restored, and one year later, there was an earthquake and a fire destroyed everything. Ungodly hatred of others will always destroy the lives that you thought you would build. The high doors that we try and make, the spite fences that we build in relationship with others, that just breeds more and more conflict. The minor discrepancies that cause the relationship, the friendship, the church to burn down to the ground. You gotta ask yourself, was it really worth it? Are the bars of the castle as Proverbs, that proverb says, there to just build up your stronghold? Or perhaps, are the bars of the castle keeping you imprisoned to your conflict? You know, what would it look like to have the love of God 
cover those offenses, to not allow the movie you tell yourself in your head about your hatred and how it's justified to play again over and over in your mind? What would it look like to exit out of the strife and leave those things at the feet of Jesus? I challenge you individually on this, but I also want to challenge the church corporately as well. By all measures, the American evangelical church is in decline in our digital age, with increasingly larger number of those who identify as what they call nuns, uh, N-O-N-E-S, not nuns, the you know, you get it, right? Meaning that the nuns hold no religious convictions. A new category of those nuns are called nonverts, right? So play on the word converts a term coined by the professor, the, uh, theologian, and sociologist Stephen Bullivant, to those who converted from Christianity to atheism, uh, these nonverts, and, and the reason why they convert from Christianity to atheism is because of the church's behavior, attitude, and posture towards culture, and particularly online, as what they observed in these Christians engaged in ungodly strife clearly went against the teachings of Christianity that they grew up hearing. In other words, the phenomenon began uh, when churches began to marry themselves to ungodly conflict, trying to win uh, false power through political control in elections, shielding those in a position of authority from a lack of accountability, and uh, shaming the victims of abuse, blaming uh, them and protecting institutions rather than standing up for the cause of justice and mercy for the marginalized, finding themselves in deeper and deeper tribalism online in echo chambers, only affirming their radicalization. You see, it was plain to the nonverts to see that the ethical shift in American evangelicalism as a broader movement could not come to face to face with its own ethical degradation. And when challenged to repent on those issues, the American evangelical church built spite fences. They become rampant anti-culture warriors who instead of reaching those whom God had called them to be salt and light to, began pulpits, became pulpits of outrage as congregations mobilized to be keyboard warriors, becoming the very fools and mockers and brawlers that Proverbs warns against. You know, this is not just all on uh, the pastors and the pulpits. When faith leaders called their congregations to turn the other cheek, the church, which has been more influenced by the world than their Bible, shouted at their pastors and leaders and said that they were being, quote, too weak, too lowly, too fearful, and instead justified slander, violence, racism, and shouting down their neighbors and called it being prophetic, taking a stand, taking the kingdom of God. The merging of an unbiblical Christianity with the nation-state poisoned the evangelical witness. And now, sadly, the term evangelical used today in our world is simply has now this connotation of Christian nationalist. Yet if you ask these nominal, quote-unquote, evangelicals, if they are involved in a church, believe in the resurrection of Jesus, believe in the reality of Christ on the throne, are engaged in the work of the Great Commission and the Great Commandments, they scoff and they say, get real. The term evangelical has come to symbolize the worst of tribalism, to stand for everything that you're against and nothing of what you're for. I'm kind of sad to even do this right now, but I think it's, it's important. Um, if I were to take sort of a straw poll here, 
Who here, just raise your hand, knows personally a friend or a family member, a, a Christian that was radicalized in the past five years? Go ahead and raise your hand, right? A good amount. You see how ungodly strife has changed us in the American church. The reality is that we, as those who hold to a historic understanding of the term evangelical Christian, and I still think that's a, a good term that I would love to reclaim, we have to be reminded of what the term evangelical means. Proclaimers of the good news. We need to realize how our continual engagement with ungodly conflict will ruin our witness if we do not start thinking about what true repentance looks like to a world in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. That we can actually affirm the negative labels that are placed upon us. Yes, we are weak because he is strong. Yes, we are lowly and gentle because this is the posture of Christ. Yes, we are fearful, not of the world, but fearful of the proper fear of God who reminds us that vengeance is his and he will repay. You know, any hope that we have placed that puts the foundation of our faith on an online discourse, political party of choice, social policy to bring about the kingdom through the weapons of the world, that's going to ultimately fail because that's not the tools that God has given his church to wage war. We wage war in a different way than the imprisoning force of ungodly strife. We wage war with mercy and grace. We wage war with the preaching of the word and prayer and the sacraments because these are the tools for the gospel that we have received. Otherwise, as Proverbs 26, 21 reminds us, as charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. Do you know what makes the Charles Crocker story so sad but so relatable in our own situation? Uh, that war could have been ended at any time. The kindle of fire of that conflict could have ended if just one man, maybe more so on Crocker, relented. But both men dug in in ways that became not just an embarrassment to their own names, but, but led down to the ultimate destruction of their houses. So let me turn it to you. What fires are you continuing to stoke through unforgiveness, through bitterness? What are the things that you have not laid down before the throne of Jesus? What embers have not been snuffed out that need to be disposed of? What are the spite fences that you've built around you towards individuals, towards the church, towards a political party? How are you longing to dehumanize others to justify your strife? What does Proverbs give us uh, in terms of prevention? How do we prevent conflict? Our third point here. Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Proverbs is describing the action of what a fool does when he begins to puncture a dam. He's letting out water out of a dam. Water begins to break and it causes, as anyone knows um, who's done structural engineering, when a dam breaks, it can cause irreparable damage. Whereas the prevention of a quarrel simply means to squash it before it begins 
to develop. It's critical to the process. In other words, the best way to prevent the damage of a quarrel is to stamp it out even before it happens. The fool who stirs up strife will try to find quarrels in everything. They'll take a shovel and begin puncturing holes into this dam by taking the worst interpretation of what you say. They will assume ungodly motives at all times in the most negative light on things that you do. They will test your patience repeatedly by nagging you about your failures and not highlighting your successes. They will loudly complain to you about anything and everything they don't like. They will spread gossip like wildfire and incense others to think of you not as a human being, but as an animal or a natural disaster. Listen to the political commentator of your choice and see how they refer to groups of human beings if they say a tidal wave of blank, a flood of blank. That's, that's not just mere uh, symbolism. That's intentional to get you to not think of them as a human being, but something dangerous, inhumane. <laughs> Proverbs' answer to such conflict that we see is simple. Do not engage it. Quit while you're ahead. Don't give it any credence. Or if you're an online uh, person, you'll know this phrase, don't feed the trolls. Proverbs 26.20 speaks this. For a lack of wood, the fire goes out, and when there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. You see, sometimes the wisest action to take in moments of deep ungodly conflict is to disengage. There is nothing left to be won. There is nothing left to communicate. There is no benefit for you wasting another second trying to tell a fool what his folly is. The editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, Russell Moore, describes it this way, um, and I'm slightly adapting his illustration. Uh, He says this, you know, if you go to a Thanksgiving dinner, and your uncle, uh, let's call him, let's use my name, let's call him Uncle Johnny, all right, uh, brings a construction hammer inside and starts destroying the ceiling with it repeatedly during dinner. The Christian response to stop the behavior isn't, let me go grab my hammer for next year. That will stop Uncle Johnny from doing that. Uh, no, your uh, options are to disengage with Uncle Johnny in a way that doesn't rise to the level of increasing the threat level to everyone around you. Or maybe it's just as simple as you don't go to Uncle Johnny's house next year. Don't feed the fuel. Don't feed it anymore. You don't need to engage it. You don't need to let the fire consume you. To a quarreler, everything is a nail to his proverbial hammer. So don't let it continue. Russell Moore reminds us that the propensity for Christians to feel as though Christendom is at stake. We need to fight fire with fire is folly. But Christians who truly believe that we live in the time of Jesus' kingdom, this kingdom that has already arrived when he came on earth and is not yet arriving, we don't have to live as though we are the judgment seat of Christ today. But we remember that Christ is on the throne And he doesn't need us to erect those judgment scenes all around us. In fact, sometimes we need to go into the prevention of conflict even further. Look at Proverbs 22.10. Drive out a scoffer and the strife will go out. Quarreling and abuse will cease. You know, sometimes the most loving thing that we can do in situations of deep and abiding strife is to remove the abuser from the situation and the quarreler from the situation. 
Now, this is a continual message throughout Scripture. Paul, in his letters, was telling the church that, you know, you need to remove the wolves in sheep's clothing. You need to remove divisive people who threaten the life of Christ's body. Um, that might be a, a shock to us, right? Uh, because it might seem as though Paul is not caring for the lost, but what Paul is actually doing is that he is longing to protect the church from these constant quarrelers. Uh, this is why church discipline, by the way, is so important in extreme cases. Uh, not to serve as a heavy hand in the church, but to love the body of Christ by not allowing abusive people and sins to linger on in its community life together. You see, the reality of a conflict quarreler is that they always long to fight. When they build up in their hatred for others, high fences that they build, they need to be removed from the church in order for the church to truly flourish. A church that continues to tolerate the tyrant in the name of false peace will only create an environment that makes victims more susceptible to abuse. Preventing conflict isn't always possible. The effects of sin on the body of Christ are too numerous to count. But it's important to see the wisdom of Proverbs here that there are unforced errors that the church needs to realize. We don't need to engage the quarreler if it's not necessary. We don't need to add fuel to the fire. and We certainly do not need to endure the abuser. These are the ways in which strife can be avoided and we should scripturally live out these principles in Proverbs as best we can. Think about Jesus and his dealing with the Pharisees. You know, oftentimes, would he answer their direct questions? Not necessarily, right? He refused, in fact. He would always seem to take another route. You know, he tells people that who had not committed sin to throw the first stone. He would answer their question with a different framing question. He would refuse to give them a sign. He would subvert their expectation in the quarrel. Jesus did not want to add fuel to their fire, and neither should the church. And this is what leads us to our last point here today, and that is the joys of peace. The joys of peace. Take a look at Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's an astonishing phrase when you look at that more carefully. The standard that Scripture is giving us here of one's faithfulness to God, of one's being pleasing to the Lord, one who's walking in accordance with his way, the indication of that faithfulness is how his enemies view him. Now notice what Proverbs 16, 7 is not saying, that peace implies that there is always reconciliation. In fact, in this Proverbs we see they remain, after all of this, still his enemy. But even his enemies, in seeing his life dedicated to the Lord, can't help but to see peace with him as a possibility for his conduct and practice. In other words, the righteous man living righteously leads to a peaceful life with those around him, even with those that are righteously against him, or unrighteously against him, I should say. This is astonishing for us because we often define our relationship and faithfulness to God in ways of opposition. You know, those who hate us, oh, it must mean that we're being faithful because people hate us so much. And there's a right propensity to take Jesus' word seriously in John 15. They will hate us without a cause. We should not be expected to be loved by the world. This 
That's not what the proverb is commending. We have to remember, though, what Jesus said in the verses that follow that verse in John 15. Jesus promised his disciples that he would send them the Holy Spirit to convict who? The world concerning righteousness and judgment. To do what in John 15? To be sent to the world to love them and help them believe the Father who had sent them. Friends, our Christian ethics are more than a mere model of the righteousness of God. Our obedience to Him, our love for God displayed in fullness. When our ways please the Lord, there is a work of the Spirit happening to those around us, our enemies, that they will be convicted of their own sin. They will see the love of Christ on display. They will see God calling upon their hearts to not just remain in ungodly conflict, but they will consider peace. There is an evangelical and winsome nature to our acts of kindness and good works to the Lord that is necessary in our obedience to God. It is a joy that is unexplainable to the world and yet desirable to them. Have you ever had a, um, a wonderful conversation with someone that you thoroughly disagreed with? What made that conversation so special? It probably had to do with the fact that the conversation was peaceable, respectful, done in a way that walked in accordance with this concept of love. It was a loving conversation, not filled with straw men, poor argumentation, or um, what the commentator uh, John Green calls reducio ad Hitler, where everyone is just calling each other Nazis, fearing or tiptoeing around the issue with your opponent with insincerity or flattery. No, no, no. What made that conversation so special is that it presented the reality of what you believed in fullness while understanding that the person across from you probably wouldn't change their mind, but strangely respected you more for what you believed. You see, it made your enemy, while still your enemy, be at peace with you. How many of us have had conversations like this recently? Why aren't more of our conversations like this? Because sin has polluted our idea of what two people disagreeing with one another should look like even as I preach. Sin has made it not about preach, about sin, in other words, has not made it about peace, but about winning. Sin has not made it about listening to comprehend, but listening to destroy and find fault. Sin has not made it about demonstrating the love of Christ to our enemies. It's the fearfulness of being hated for what you believe and leading for you to shell up to greater bitterness, anger, and frustration. It's leading with the law at all times and forgetting the gospel of grace. So we need to reclaim the ethos of Proverbs 12.20 and Proverbs 28.25. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. In Proverbs 28.25, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. So in other words, the Christian's call is to realize that our work is not about winning a war that God has already won, but trusting in the Lord for peace. We cannot find peace in fight or flight, in the isolation away from conflict or the full throttle engagement of it. Instead, we find peace in the one who has already wrought it for us, 
who trust in the plan of Christ's peace brought for us at the defeat of Satan. Those awaiting his return will find peace knowing that the hatred of our world will not be forever. You see, in other words, our conflicts in the short term aren't ultimately about who wins and who loses. Rather, it's about how we build the bridge of peace to those desperately, desperately in need of grace. It's about how we tell people about the Jesus who transformed and shook the entire world by taking on the sins of the world who would hate him so much that they would place him on a cross and mock him as he died. It's how we embrace the character of Jesus who looks to the Father in heaven and says, Father, forgive these people for they do not know what they do. It's about a Jesus who tells his disciples to go into this world and love them, that they would be marked by love, that anyone who does not love their brothers is not a true disciple. It's considering about what is truly meant by one of Jesus' greatest titles, that he is the Prince of Peace. Perhaps nowhere is this more apparent than what's going on in a church in Chengdu, China right now called Early Rain Covenant Church. A church that had grown to the size of about 500 plus members. A church in China that founded its own seminary and liberal arts college. Built two sanctuaries, a kindergarten through 12th grade education center. And seemed to be a light in a place where light was legally not allowed to exist. In December 9th of 2018, the Chinese government arrested Pastor Wang Yi and his wife. Along with a hundred others for questioning charging them with rebellion against the state. They began searches on the homes of their other families, taking away their personal property. Some members of the church who were detained were beaten physically. They were told to strip naked. They were given up to starvation, had been forced to sign pledges to never attend the church again. Many of them were fired from their jobs, being charged with being a part of an evil cult. Authorities froze their accounts of not just those who were in prison, but also their wives outside of prison and for their children as well. We may ask ourselves how anyone can feel the joy of peace in a situation like this. Uh, this is uh, Pastor Wang Yi and his wife. Um, but hear what Pastor Wang Yi preached to his congregation in 2017 regarding the inevitable persecution. He said this, the government has the authority to confiscate all of our property. If it wants to confiscate our things, then it can confiscate them. If it wants to kick us out, then it can kick us out, because God will clearly judge it. But the Lord has not given them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He has given them to the church. Over the past 2,000 years of church history and Chinese church history, the church has always been faced with this struggle and this choice. What should we do? In this world, in this crooked, depraved, and perverse world, how do we demonstrate that we are a group of people who trust in Jesus? It is through bodily suffering that we demonstrate the freedom of our souls. Wang Yi recognized the need for the church to be joyful in the midst of suffering and persecution, to be imitators of Christ. That even as he sits in prison today, separated from his wife, serving his fourth year out of a nine-year sentence on bogus charges, he trusts in a Jesus that has already won the battle for him. He clings to his Savior, and he longs for the church to find its peace, not in the comfort of their situation, 
but in the peace that Christ is offering you here today. Even as he suffers the consequences of ungodly strife, he finds the joy of peace in a Jesus who has been there with him. So what about you? I'll end with the ending of Charles Crocker's story on his property. When the fire and the earthquake destroyed the land, the Crocker family decided to do something symbolic, but something very poignant. They donated the land that Crocker had spent a lifetime in strife trying to make a point, and they donated it to a church, to charity. So what was placed up in its stead? A cathedral was built on Crocker's property, a place of worship called Grace Cathedral. It took a tremendous amount of effort and peacemaking to get this building built. It took 60 years before it was finally complete. But the symbol remains. You see, the enduring nature of conflict leads to destruction and death and waste. These are evidences of the fall. But the enduring nature of peace, the pursuit of reconciliation, the joy of turning enemies to friends and leading them to worship, friends, this is the part of the gospel work that we have been given because this is exactly what Jesus does for us. So it's my hope and prayer that we can pursue the wisdom in learning how to avoid ungodly conflict and seek the peace of Christ. Let's pray together.